Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest issue of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Thanks for joining us. So I'm Alison Humphreys of Recruitment Leadership and today I'm really pleased to be joined by Amanda Simpson. Amanda, you are the founder of SVC Solutions based down in Essex and I believe you've previously been awarded Businesswoman of the Year um, by the IOD and for your county. So congratulations, you must have been doing something right all that time. You and I, I think, met via the REC, of both of which we're very active members. And I've got two big themes that I want to explore with you today and get your thoughts on. So in the first half of today's podcast, we are going to be looking into the process that you went through when you decided to take your business into new markets, um, more of which in a moment. So I think really interesting at a time when lots of recruitment business owners are thinking of diversifying uh, and some practical lessons I'm sure we'll get from there. The second half of today's broadcast is going to be about the role of an experience of leaders in today's really quite stretching business environment. So employee expectations are sky high. There's a a new expectation of total flexibility. And on top of that, we're now also asked to, you know, effectively provide purpose and vision and and social services, if you will, um, for not just our own employees, but for the rest of the community. So there's a lot there to unpack. Just to kick us off, Amanda, could you give us a little bit of background about your business as it is now? Firstly, thank you, Alison, for taking time out with me to, 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 to do this. So I'm very excited and I love sort of progressing and, and sharing information with other experienced people. So I um, started SVC in 1999. Um, I've been in, in the recruitment industry myself for probably about 20 years. So I done it with a, with the vision of dare to be a little bit different and walking in the shoes of a candidate and also a client's requirements. So primarily my background is recruitment. However, I took a decision in various stages to change the model of SVC and become more of a solutions provider. So as we sit here today, we currently offer recruitment services be it temporary or permanent recruitments or contracts. But alongside that, we also offer HR support to small, medium, large businesses, either on a monthly, they retain us on a monthly basis, or we do one-off special projects. And similar for health and safety. And we are also a training 
accredited ILM centre. So we do um, ILMs, which is Institute of Leadership and Management, or soft skills. So it's very, very varied. But I took the, albeit initially an expensive step, but also a brave step to surround myself with experts in all those areas to be able to offer a roadmap, if you like, a journey for people-to-people skills. Because as, as a business, running a business, we all come up against HR issues or health and safety issues or training issues. Uh, and obviously recruitment issues, which is a bit more pressing right now. So to be able to offer that expertise to businesses and candidates, to be fair, with qualified people who know their industry was paramount. And, and do, how many staff do you employ now, Amanda? Well, I, before the pandemic, I was employing 30, and now I'm employing 12. <laughs> right, okay. So we'll come on to, uh, to all of that in a moment. But right now, what I'd like to understand, so you set up SVC as a pure recruitment business, is that right? I did initially, yeah. Okay, and what, and what part of the market did you focus on initially? So we, we didn't specialise in any specific area because my background was general recruitment, um, and, but it was also IT. So we I literally went out to my clients and discussed what their requirements are and then surrounded myself with people who from those backgrounds to give the specialist support that they needed. So... What was it that if you set the business up initially as recruitment, obviously you, you found a requirement for other services, HR, L&D, health and safety, like you've mentioned. But what was it that, that drove you initially to ask that question of your clients? Was it you know to do with business need because you didn't have enough business? Or was it because you were looking to achieve something else that wasn't just about baseline profit? In all honesty, it was purely came from my needs as a leader, my needs of running a business. And I sat there and realised quite quickly <laughs> that I wasn't a, a, a not a qualified HR specialist or health and safety specialist or training specialist at that time. So... I would sit there as a leader running my own business and think, I've come up against challenges in those areas. How many other people have that challenge and don't have the expertise around them? So it was a win-win for me because I initially engaged these people to help me and help make sure that my HR was fine, my health and safety was good, my my training was exemplary because that was so important to me. And my passion for giving that to other leaders, because it's quite lonely when you're running a business um, and you need to have that support around you so you know that you're protected and your staff are protected. So it, it came from that. And and having that support for, for me in my business then made me sit there and think, well, how many other people out, out in that world feel like I felt? And that's when I took the model and marketed it out there. It's not been easy. <laughs> it's had its challenges. <laughs> now, that's what I wanted to ask you uh, about the process of 
customers, clients and candidates do like to put you in a box, don't they? Um, so, you know, I have the same thing. I have clients who want to use me for training and it never occurs to them that I do anything else. Whereas in fact, training is now a small, a small part of what I do. Uh, and other people who think because I, for example, worked on their, their policies that I must be HR rather than a commercial, you know, a commercial business director. So likewise, you must have experienced this, you know, people saying, well, think, if thinking, if not saying, well, you're a recruiter, get back in your box. <laughs> so, so when you made this decision, what came first? Was it HR? Was that the first edition or? It was, yes. Right. Okay. So can you just talk our listeners through the process you went through? So starting with what research you did and then what preparation and, um, and how you went about selling that solution. So the research sort of, it, it highlighted itself to be fair, because running a business and employing people, we all know it comes with its, you know, legislation bits that you have to do, protecting the, the employee, protecting you as a business. So that naturally came about. I then took the decision that I needed an expert in, in my business to help me because my business grew very, very quickly. And going back to what you said about people put you in a box, I'd been known for recruitment locally. So people knew that that's what I did. So for me to come out of that box and say, well, hang on a minute, I do much more than just recruitment has been challenging and it still is it, even 22 years in you know you cannot take your foot off the gas when it comes to marketing but for me the biggest thing that i did and still do is face-to-face -face meetings go and listen to what your client needs don't assume and when you're in front of them you can talk more about why are they recruiting is it because of uh, increase in business? Is it because their staff retention is poor? What is the reason for that? Because normally if it's staff retention, it involves HR along the line somewhere. It involves training, it involves those things. So have that grown up business conversation, that consultancy conversation, rather than that, are you looking for any staff conversation? <laughs> So I literally, as my team grew, I educated my consultants to be more commercially minded rather than just pure recruiters. Right. So you actually recruited HR specialists. And when you made that commitment, did you get into the detail of drawing up a, you know, a budget for the, the, you know, the future growth of this business? Um, did you spend money on marketing it at that point? And um, in a methodical way, how did you sell it? Did you productize? Did you just consult? So that's a lot of questions. It was huge. And I was sort of learning as I was going as well. So I knew I had to reinvest into the business um, because, as we all know, these experts do not come cheaply. I have four CIPD qualified consultants in in the business so I also have health and safety qualified people in the business so it's a big overhead to take on but you need to have that expertise to be able to deliver the service that a client expects and a client deserves so 
it was a gamble on my part, but I am so passionate and I still am more so now as well. It's not just about one size fits all and, and, and recruitment very much has got its own area and there's some brilliant people out there, some brilliant experts out there that specialize in recruitment. What I wanted to do was become much more of a solutions provider because I felt I needed that as an individual. I think marketing it, we tried all sorts of different things, Alison, to be fair. It's not my strong point. And certainly back then, all them years ago, it wasn't my strong point. So I had to put a lot of trust into outsourcing the marketing. Um, No one really got it. (laughs) People struggled with it. So I went down and selling the model is, and it still is to this day, is it's all about getting in front of your clients and listening to what challenges they have and then offering that solution. So the biggest selling point of it is the face-to-face meetings and learning and understanding other businesses and where they're coming from. Marketing plays a huge part now, of course it does, it does for all of us, but finding the right marketing agency or the right person to do your marketing, I bought it in-house at one point because I thought that'd be the easiest thing to do, but when you're employing someone in marketing, they normally specialize. So they're either digital marketers or they're what I needed. And what you need is an all rounder, which is quite hard to find. So I have now thankfully got a partnership with a great marketing company who understand us and understand our model and who we are. So it's interesting this, if you think about growing your business and start, you know, anyone starting with a core business of, of recruitment has got Effectively, very broadly, if you imagine a graph with existing clients um, to new clients along the horizontal axis and, and then existing products to new products up the vertical axis, you can either put all your efforts just into selling all your products over and over again to your existing clients. In other words, maximum penetration. Or you can go down the route of taking the recruitment services out to new clients. Yeah, so... Um, so expanding your business, or you can try and sell new products to existing clients, which is from what you're saying, in effect, what you did. Yeah. And one of the burdens that you take on when you do that is you don't just have to be better than your competitors on a like for like comparison. You are actually educating the client, aren't you? You're teaching them why the concept of a sort of end-to-end business services solution is better than just buying those services on a one-off basis and so educating is hard and it takes quite a lot of time before you educate then sell then start invoicing how long did it take you to sort of break even in from that expansion into hr Every every area was different. So the the HR area probably took a good twelve months to break even. Um, but once you've got those clients on board, and I'm very proud to say the clients that we gained back in 2006, I think it was, uh, are still with us. We do not pin them down and capture them into contracts. It's very open ended. They can leave whenever they want to leave. There's no, you know, we're only as good as the service that we offer. So there's no tie-in with us. I'm really passionate about that because I think if you're doing a good job, people will stay with you. 
if you're not, then they will leave. You get your natural wastage, people sell businesses, move on, etc. But I'm very proud to say that our client base has stuck for all those years. Business development, got to be good at it. You know, you've, you've got to, the days of cold calling are long gone. And, you know, we don't want that. We do not want that as business owners. And then it's educating, it's explaining. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's all about trust. It's all about them knowing that what you're offering, they can relax and have peace of mind. And so they can focus on their business, their BD, their their profits, their customers, rather than have to do everything themselves, which is very overwhelming for, for all of us. So it's not easy. Would I have never, I can't ever look at anyone and say, oh, we've done it and we're good to go. It's a process that you're constantly improving, constantly looking at, because our health and safety people consultants with us you know that we've got to update their skills they've got to be updated year on year they've got to be you know we've invested in them and training them and bringing them to chartered level you don't get to chartered and just sit back you have to keep those skills going and so the cost of keeping those people on board now is not as high as the original investment but it's there's still a cost that comes with it it's, it's working smart, Alison, to be fair. The selling of the module is all about relationships and it's all about, but so is recruitment. You know, if, I'm very passionate about that. You know, you can do recruitment online. Can you, can you do it really effectively? You need such amazing technology, such amazing systems in place to do it really well. And some companies have but it's personal. We are mucking about with people's lives. So I'm very passionate about getting it right. You know, I've got to sleep at night. (laughs) Well said, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We are messing around with people's lives and livelihoods, aren't we? You know, and the idea that um, people can just be pushed around or treated like pawns in a recruiter's game is, is quite scary. I'm interested that you didn't go down the route of tying clients into a subscription model because that is very much the 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 direction of traffic now for um you know hr consultancies for accountants for for hairdressers even opticians everybody wants to have everyone on a subscription and for a lot of recruiters that's part of the big attraction of diversifying is because they want to have that continuity of income that pure perm recruitment for example just doesn't provide so why did you decide not to do that i get that asked that question a lot i decided not to do it because with customer when you go and see customers the amount of feedback i got back from customers saying oh i am tied into this company i can't get away for two years five years in some some cases i'm not happy with the service but i can't do anything about it and it it absolutely destroyed me I, i i was like that is so bad, you know. So I went the brave route and I am a bit of a, I don't, I don't mind taking risks so much because I thought I would never want one of my customers saying to a competitor or to somebody else, oh, I'm with SVC because I can't get out of the contract. That would not be good for me. And so we as a team sat down together and decided, you know what, 
we give it everything we've got. We're great at what we do. We're confident in what we do. Therefore, we're not going to tie you in. If you need to leave us, we will investigate why, of course, but it, we wouldn't want people to feel that they, they can't have options. It's their business. It's their choice. They should be able to run their business how they want to. And it works. It absolutely works because people do not feel pressurized in any way. I am a believer in subscriptions in certain industries. But for me, I don't feel the need to tie people in because the object of the game is that people stay with you because they love what you do and they feel safe. Right. So... It's really interesting that um, you chose to go down that route and obviously it's worked for you. What didn't work in terms of your rollout of your service offering? Were there any mistakes that you look back on now and say, well, that was, that was what was I thinking? Yeah, I think it's the educating, it's assuming that people wanted to be educated. <laughs> I think that was probably my naivety in that everyone felt like I felt and not everyone did. <laughs> so it was it was probably that. And also there are some companies that have got excellent HR support already. They've got excellent health and safety procedures in place. So it's not for everybody. And it was for me, I was on this one woman mission to change the world. And, you know, oh, you know, this is fantastic. But it's the realisation that it isn't for everybody. And you've got to learn to know your audience. And that's for me was the bit of a, I've got to put more time into understanding what type of businesses need this what type of personalities need this you know being a bit more aware of the marketing i guess not just firing it out to everybody because not everyone needs it yeah so very often you know i uh, advise my clients recruitment business owners who are looking to diversify that actually if you're a new name taking perhaps a new product out, you need to productize it. You need to say, well, this is what you get, top to bottom. And while no one will ever want the off-the-shelf model, they always want it, you know, like a size up and in a different color, it's a starting point for discussion. I find it very difficult to sell what you can't define, if you like. And you took the opposite view. So tell me about that. What happens is when, when we're having discussions with our clients, all our, our relationships, whether it's a brand new client or it's an existing client, the first thing we do is we, we visit, we go and see them or they come and see us or, or however we do it. So if it's specifically HR orientated, the HR specialists go. If it's health and safety, the health and safety specialists go. But they have enough knowledge and experience to that conversation could go from needing HR to actually you need training. So they have enough experience to take it down another road. So it's all about investing in my people and the knowledge and experience of my people and matching them to the right client. Okay, so which goes back to the point you made earlier about in being able to have a strategic level conversation rather than got any jobs, mate, kind of approach. So... It's interesting that you're, you're talking about the importance of having truly bespoke 
packages put together, if you will, for your clients, which might be a bit of a you know policy review and looking at their employee value proposition and then their recruitment linked together. And being able to actually connect up at a high level, it is a skill, isn't it? So and I'm I am often quite appalled actually when I visit clients who tell me, oh yeah, 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 I've got a staff handbook. And to them it's literally a box ticker. And I look at these policies and they are completely off the shelf non-tailored to a recruitment environment and they're doing nothing for those people in fact they sometimes have to blow the dust off them they're not used by anyone and um, it's because they have regarded the entire thing as a box ticking exercise rather than be taken through the discussion that says actually this can drive your business so in recruitment one of the issues that I often find and I'm CIPD qualified um, and um, set exams in employment law as you know Amanda one of the issues I often find is that they've got some off-the-shelf policy about data, about use of IT that simply doesn't reflect the fact that recruiters have to use social media for their jobs. <laughs> you know, it's not in there anywhere. Um, okay, so one last question, and then we'll move on to the second um, issue we want to discuss, and that is a lot of people either get put off from going into a new area or sometimes, uh, you know, suffer from not having first-hand experience of that new area themselves so suddenly they've got to manage and yes scrutinize people who are doing it for them and it feels like they've got one arm tied behind their back a little bit how how did you get through that we we had this rule um that anyone new joining the business because you know way back then i was bringing in all new people so I, i i didn't know much about them they would learn recruitment inside and out first before they started going into a more of a strategic mindset. And to be honest, you know, I did have and still do have people that are just pure recruitment. They they can't go into an environment of HR or, or health and safety or, or whatever. So it would be chaos if we were all strategic, but they would not, they would have to go through a training process in-house on all aspects of business. So that is customer relationships, commerciality, you know, understanding commerciality properly, not just what we read. It's, you know, what is the real world? So we delivered lots and lots of training to those people and they would go out with someone initially who was experienced and did know. So they would learn off a mentor and eventually they would stand alone. It was a time-consuming process, but it was an important process because it's like delivering training. You know, I've got this pet hate of PowerPoint and you go on a training course and all the delegates come in and they all look fed up because they're thinking, I'm really busy. I don't really don't want to be here today. And blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a busy world out there now. So if a trainer who's delivering has only learned their material through books, it comes across. But if they've learned their material through experiencing it and living in it, then it's more genuine, more fun. The learning gets absorbed better. So our health and safety people, for example, if they train health and safety, they have lived and breathed it. They they haven't just learned it. They've lived and breathed it. They've worked with different clients in different industries, in agriculture, in hospitality, in engineering. They've lived and breathed it. So 
it is time consuming, but it's investing in your people to get them to that level. Some people come into our business and get it straight away. They, they, you can see it in them, um, but not many. <laughs> so when you, um, you brought in learning and development specialists, HR specialists into the business, how did you, in, on a day-to-day basis, how did you know if they were on course? Did you, did you agree some basic KPIs? Were they different? Um, what, what kind of KPIs did you put in place? We, we would put in KPIs of their learning. So, you know, making sure that they had done the specific learning that they had to do. We would put in KPIs about client relationships, visits, going out attending visits, feedback forms from those visits, and also feedback from our clients. We still have KPIs now. They're a little bit more advanced now because we, we run a whole CRM system. But back then it was all paper driven. So it was quite time consuming as a leader on my part because I didn't want to put these people out on the road doing their thing, feeling vulnerable, but at the same time giving the wrong advice to our clients. It was working with them. I would spend, I spent years going out with them and actually attending the meetings myself and them learning off of me and then me taking a back step, watching what they do. And, and then delivering the specific training or needs that they, they needed to have. But it's also autonomy. People, when you employ people to do a job, they're not kids, you know, they, they wanna know what's going on in the business and they wanna feel that they are making a difference. So a lot of it's trust. I've been bitten a few times. Um, but I think we all have, and it's, it, it's based on trusting them and them feeling trusted because that empowers them to improve and be better and honesty, looking at a client in the eye in a meeting and saying, do you know what, that is not my expertise. So therefore I am going to pass you on to Paul or Charlie or whoever, because they'd be better suited to help you with this situation not being able to yourself judge of the quality of their work you therefore gathered qualitative feedback from from clients to get a feel for that okay and then in terms of setting sales um sales targets and so forth for these new hr people did you do that yes uh, but it was a team effort it wasn't individual so and i'm a big believer in that it's about all of us achieving our goals and even with our recruiters now, it's a team effort. You can tell who's being lazy and sitting on their laurels and because uh, you stand out like a sore thumb if you are, but um, we meet as a team, we discuss as a team, so the targets are all team-driven and rewards are team-driven as well. So they're actually highly incentivized to look for something that, okay, so there isn't an HR need here, but there is a sing- an isolated recruitment need and so forth. All right. So thank you. Interesting stuff. Now, we've just begun to touch there on some of the challenges of, of being a leader. I'd like to, t- to, to turn now to the new world of work, the post-pandemic world of work, and your experiences during the last couple of years, and how a leader can possibly do everything that people seem to be asking them to do in this new world of work. So let's just start with your experiences, if you would. Many of the businesses I work with, you know, if they're really honest, they felt completely sucked dry by giving so much support to their staff, 
during this difficult period, worrying about where the money was coming on to pay, you know, to pay wages. Um, they're absolutely exhausting. How was it for you? It was exhausting. It was challenging. I'm very proud of what we've done. We took very brave steps very early. Um, so the pandemic sort of started in the March. By the June, I'd made some very serious business decisions because I had to protect as many people and the business as much and my customers as much as I could. So I've been through probably three recessions in my time over the 22 years, and this is just unprecedented. But I also had some really serious personal challenges at the same time. So it all sort of hit me at the same time. So it was a dig deep and row hard situation, um, if I'm honest, and keeping your good people around you, communicating, talking, you know, the well-being of sometimes as a leader admitting vulnerabilities, which is hard because everyone looks up to you to give them the answers. Everyone, you are like everyone's mum. So when you show vulnerability, the whole ship wobbles. So it's showing vulnerability in ways that is honest, um, asking for help, because as a leader, we're not very good at that sometimes because we think, oh, no, I can't, I can't ask for help. It's got to be me. Well, actually, you can ask for help and you can share your stories. So to give you an idea, when just before the pandemic hit, I was, and still am, going through a divorce after 25 years, which is massive. Um, and sadly, I had a bereavement. Um, my sister got a brain tumour and my sister passed away. So having that and COVID and the divorce all at the same time, I'll be honest, there were days where I could have quite easily, had I been allowed to, get on a flight and um, disappear. Um, but I knew that I had to have the back of my teams, my family, my livelihood. So you just dig deep. Um, but my team obviously knew some of the things that were going on for me. And I think I was very lucky in as much as they were there for me. They were supportive. I made a mistake that, that I just threw myself at my job and very quickly you, you've got the risk of burnout or you've got the risk of, you know, not, not doing things properly. Um, I recognised that in myself really quickly. Thank goodness. And I did have a colleague point out some things to me, which was probably very, very brave on their part, but very good at the same time. So I just took the attitude, I can, I can try to help as many people as I can, but it's that analogy when you get on a plane and you listen to the safety thing and it says, always put the mask on yourself before you give it to the person next to you. Because if you're not good, they're not going to survive. So I took some time and put the mask on myself, made sure my well-being was okay, made sure I was dealing with the things I needed to be dealing with. And getting through grief is probably, well, it's not probably, it is the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. And even 
two years down the line, it still affects me on a daily basis. But you you learn to adapt and go through the cycle of change that is upon you. So I, I have to be right for the business to be right, to be able to support my team. So recognizing when you need timeout or you need um, to look after your own mental health. So if I were to ask you to distill that into, you know, just a couple of bits of advice for other business leaders on, so how do you take care of yourself? What do you look out for and what steps did you take? It's very easy to jump on the bandwagon of just going at a speed because you think, I want to forget about that. I want to, I don't want to even want to think about that. So the, the best bit of advice I can say, really, which worked for me is communicating, talking to the right people, expressing how you feel. It's okay to not be okay. So I got myself a therapist to help me with the grieving process that naturally went into the divorce because divorce is a grieving process. And that's what I learned as well. It, you know, loss isn't just losing someone who passes away. Loss is lots and lots and lots of things. It's the loss of a business, the loss of a, a dog, the loss of a, a relationship. So I learned that from therapy um, and I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, I needed that help. And I got that help and I dip in and out of that help now when I need it. And it immensely helped me to be authentic, my authentic self, rather than the Amanda that walks into the business every day, morning all, no matter how she's feeling inside, you know, I learned to be more authentic, which I think gained respect from the people that work for me. They saw me as a human. So thank you very much for sharing all that, Amanda. Okay, I want to just to broaden that discussion now into the climate that business leaders of particularly of small businesses are operating in right now. So just to set the scene, we have I read yesterday a a phrase was kicking around LinkedIn. It was called the great resignation. Um, If there was a you know, there's a, a massive global movement for everybody to chuck in their jobs. There is an expectation of total flexibility in the where and when people work that uh, is getting increasingly difficult to manage in practice. We've got um, an expectation from many employees that their pay will be increased, that their uh, the benefits that they have need to be top of the market. Um, and, you know, a trip to Ibiza is a basic human right in recruitment from the way some people talk about it. Um, and then we add in the whole other layer of social purpose. And so let me start with a quite a, a provocative question on that on that one. Is it really the case that businesses can be run for social purpose? Isn't a business actually just there to make money and... Uh, you know, any social benefits are an incidental. What's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are on it. If you're going to run a business that is just for social purpose, you've got to be in a strong financial position to to make that decision. (laughs) Most of us are trying to keep our heads above water and and run a business. And let's be honest here, Alison, we're running businesses to make money, to secure jobs, to, to, to live 
the lifestyles that we all want to live. So I think the two together can work. I, I think we've all got a social purpose and we all, you know, but we've got to balance it. The trick is balancing it, you know, taking the, taking the bits that are relevant at the time and being honest and, and looking at ourselves and saying, what does social purpose mean to me, to us as businesses? You know, what, what does it mean? And where does, does it fit in, in the whole bigger picture? Because at the, at the end of the day, you've got to make money as well. So it's balancing it. The new world of work, as far as what you just mentioned, it's a crazy world out there at the moment. There's counter offers flying around here, there and everywhere. There's all sorts of change going on. It's very hard to run a business just on social purpose when you've got all of that going on around you. So when I was talking about the the heightened expectations of employees, is that something that you've you've actually had to deal with personally yeah it, it it's it's been huge um i would say again it's trying to find a balance because we've gone into a new world of work and i do not think we're going to ever go back to where it was before the pandemic i think we've got to adapt 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 but we've got to be realistic it needs to settle down because and it will settle down eventually but I think there's there's all sorts of things, hybrid working, you know, or total working from home. That's not just a a business challenge for a leader to have to settle down into a working pattern. Trust comes into it. Pay comes into it. The people working from home need support. You know, it's hard to support people when they're miles away and you never see them. So... It's finding that. So training is taking a huge part in in the new way we're all working. The the challenges of more pay, I think as a country, sometimes we we can be a bit lazy. Minimum wage does increase year on year, but we've got to be realistic. It's not about throwing loads of money at people. I think people want security and they want to feel part of the bigger picture. So it's thinking about... How can I become an employer of choice? Now, there's a there's a point I would, wanted to emphasise, really. I think a, a number of people I speak to are driven by constant comparison. So, uh, in fact, one business owner I know gave one of his staff the full-time brief of just watching all the other recruiters in that city and what they were offering their staff. And honestly, and she would then come with a report and saying, oh, well, they're getting flexi time and they're getting Friday afternoon early closing. And the expectation was just that he would give all of his stuff all of these things. And I found that one of the things you that you've got to understand as a business leader is that you cannot be all things to all people. And therefore, you need to consider what your audience is, as well as what your, your customer base is, and say, look, you know, we will there are certain things we need to drive and therefore we cannot offer you that benefit, but we do offer this package and make up your mind what kind of employer you are. You know, I think there are some people who are totally driven by the size of the pay packet they take home. And frankly, they're not that much concerned about your social purpose. And there are others who are much more concerned about, you know, their work-life balance, for example, and they would rather 
take home a bit less, but yes, have gym membership and um, maybe more days holidays. And this constant idea that everybody's got to keep up with everybody creates a ridiculous inflation effect, which is costing us all a fortune. In fact, there's something I often look at when I start business with a new recruitment business, and that is what proportion of their net fee income they are paying out directly to staff. That's in wages, commission, NI, pension costs. Now, 30 years ago, that figure in a perm business was higher than in a temp business, and a perm business was about top whack, 30%. Nowadays, you should consider yourself, uh, give yourself a pat on the back if that figure is under 50% for a comparative business on average. Now, if people know that they're running high and it's you know it's crept up from 40 to near to 50 it may be because they've got a number of new um not you know staff who who aren't productive yet but what worries me is when i see people actually setting budgets around this you know at, at more than 50 percent for the future because frankly we're all having to spend more on marketing we've got and we're about to be hit with a national insurance rise this is unsustainable and the next thing they know they won't they won't have a business or well, you've got a lot of there's a lot of overpaid divas so uh, we seem to be agreeing that you you can't be all things to all men in terms of what uh, and women in terms of what you offer there's a another issue there which is the expectation of total flexibility now i don't know about you i often find myself trying to unpick situations where an inexperienced business owner has been asked by one person if they can have a special arrangement. You know, um, they've bought a dog since the pandemic and the dog's very attached to them and they want to work more from home. And it never seems like a big deal at the time, does it? And the business owner says, yeah, can't see the harm. Um, But by doing so, they've created a new policy, haven't they? And they don't realise the implications. So I'm often having to unpick those things uh, and recalibrate like what they're doing. So have you or are you aware of and your clients issues like that? Yeah, lots of issues like that. Because you make change for one person. It is absolutely what you just said, Alison. It becomes a policy. And, and, and then you, you're creating this big web of issues, if you like, without realising it. And going back to what you said, you know, we, we make... It's dangerous to make assumptions of what your staff want. If you're going to throw, and, and in my my world, and being a trainer as well, and I look at this a lot, if you're going to, and which is happening in the world at the moment, oh, don't leave, we'll offer you another £10,000 a year to stay. Well, that is a very motivating, and it will last about a week, because that person will be motivated oh that's lovely they said they value me they're keeping me here and they've given me another ten thousand pounds but that motivation in that employee will wane very quickly what we need to do is take the blindfold off and actually ask the right questions in our businesses of who are we what are our values what do we want as a team what's important to our staff because counter-offering and just throwing money at people is a dangerous not cost effective and it's a short-term fix so we need to 
not follow what everyone else is doing and just change all our policies and our procedures and offer gym membership and offer this and offer that and offer the other. We need to look well, what works for our businesses, what works for us and what could the repercussions be if I make quick decisions like that. You know, so this is where HR comes in. This is where you can, you know, I had a meeting just yesterday where I've come up with this being who I am. I come up with great ideas and then I've learned, don't run with it, Amanda. Look at it properly and logically. And I sat down with HR yesterday and said, this is my idea. This is my solution. Have I got any danger zones there? And they'll point out anything. And I go, right, brilliant, because... I might not have thought of that. And being in sales, recruiters are in sales, so their main aim is to get that sale in. As a leader of sales people is understanding them, learn what makes them tick, understand what is important to the individual. That's tough if you're running a business of two, three hundred thousands of employees, because you can't possibly get to know all of them. But it's not so tough in a small to medium-sized business. It's really sort of educating our managers, our leaders within our business to to do it in in a more planned way rather than a gung-ho way where we're just throwing stuff at. (laughs) Yes, understood. Okay. So, um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. If you are running a recruitment business and you would um, like to discuss how I can support you in terms of rolling that out sanely, wisely, and in a a profitable way, please do get in contact with me, Alison Humphreys. Um, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, My very best wishes to you and your team at SVC. Uh, Thank you for sharing your insights. And um, and we'll see you next episode. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.